Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Now when we look around the room this morning, and pretty much every Sunday morning, you'll see multiple generations. You'll see little children in the pews. You'll see sons and daughters. You'll see brothers and sisters. You'll see fathers and mothers, maybe even grandmothers and grandfathers. Families involve different ages. They involve different stages of life. They involve different levels of maturity, different levels of knowledge, different roles. You ever just sat back and wondered why that is? Why is it that we have such a unique family covenant bond? Especially in the family of God. We have children, we have, we have fathers and mothers, we have grandfathers and grandmothers. Why is it that we have these different stages of life? Children, have you ever wondered why you have parents? As simple as that may sound. Have you ever wondered why you have a father and a mother? Sometimes it's a little weird. Have you ever wondered why you have brothers and sisters? Why must we be united together to one another in this way? Why must we be dependent upon one another? Even commanded to work with others in the covenant bond of the family. Now there's many ways to answer that particular, those particular questions. We're going to answer one facet of it this morning. We're not going to cover all of that. But when you really think about a theology of the family... It's almost impossible not to think about the family of God. Obviously, theology comes from the scriptures, and in the scriptures we see a giant family from start to finish. Our great God and Savior has a family of his own. This household began with a family. It began with Adam and his wife, and from Adam and his wife sprang many more families and many more families. And in fact, the whole scripture is a story about the growth of, of a family. And it's about not just the growth of a family in the scope in the scope of that growth or in the numbers of that growth, but also in the maturity of that family. For example, Israel, being the family of God under the old covenant, Israel was under the law as a tutor, as a guide to discipline and train him to live holy and righteously before the Lord. This is the first five books of the Bible, right? Then Israel received a king. Israel received a king to help guide Israel in battle, to help steward them and and train them in wisdom. And you see this in the wisdom literature with Solomon and David. And then Israel received the foresight and the fatherly care of the prophets to help guide Israel to the fullness of that family, which is Christ. So the Old Covenant Scriptures is a story of Israel coming to maturity. Coming to maturity in the person of Jesus, the perfect man. And each of these stages of life for Israel are exhibited in the New Covenant Church. Our children, for example, are marked out and set apart as holy in baptism. And they are trained in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Our young adults, those in the prime of their life, and when I say young adults, I don't mean those who are just... In late in the, in the teens. I'm talking about those in the prime of their life, fathers and mothers in this room, young parents. They're to work with, they're to 
fight sin with and be zealous for the wise words of God and to train others in those words. Our elders, not just the ecclesiastical elders, not just the offices, but those who are older in this room, those both physically and spiritually mature, are to be prophetic voices in the lives of those around us, to guide us to Christ. That is their role. This is what the family looks like, child, adults, and elders. But more than this, Christ fulfills all of these levels of maturity. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He knew every part of it. He fulfilled it. And he became a sacrifice for sin on our behalf. He is our great high priest. Jesus is our wise king who fought on our behalf and secured our victory over sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is the great and final prophet who directs our steps to eternal life in him. Jesus is the perfect man in whom the family of God grows into and finds its end, its purpose, its meaning. And John is going to show us that in Christ, the family of God is blessed with this threefold blessing of forgiveness, like a priest, wisdom, like a king, and, or I should say wisdom like in a prophet, and victory like a king. And he is going to show us that the church participates as a family in the offices of Christ's ministry. And this is what it means to be the body of Christ on earth. A family of all ages and maturity fulfilling the ministry of Jesus. So in verse 12 of chapter 2, John seems to be digressing a bit. We've, we've covered a lot up until this point. He seems to be stopping, and in your Bibles you may see that there's a change in structure for verses 12 and 14. It looks like he's just bursting into poetry. He just stops and he wants to say, this is who I'm writing to. There's a lot of debate surrounding why John writes the way he does in these three unique verses. It, again, it almost, it almost looks like he's becoming a poet all of a sudden. And he repeats himself in threes. Three categories of people, children, young men, and fathers. Three I write to you's. There's actually six, but there's, they're coupled in threes along with those three categories. And in John's style, these three categories have many depths. They have different meanings. And all of these categories are descriptions of the church. So the point here is that John is stopping... He's stopping to remind his audience who he is writing to. He's writing to the church. He had just spent some time talking about those who walk in darkness, those who don't admit to sin, who don't confess their sin, those who do not, uh, who do not love the brothers and the Lord. He spent a lot of time talking about sin. And so he's stopping to remind the church who he's talking to. He's talking to those who have been forgiven, to those who have overcome the evil one, to those who have known him who is from the beginning. He's reminding them that they're still Christians. Right? He's assuring them. This letter is a call for them to live like they are Christians, to live according to that call that they've been given. He's saying, do not feel overwhelmed. Do not, do not be in despair. You are in Christ. You are part of the family of God. You are one of us. We are united together. He's assuring them of their status before the Lord. And this is why he uses the language of family. And he uses this all throughout his letters. But especially here. He uses the language of family to describe the church. 
We are all little children before the Father in heaven. In this epistle especially, John has been using the phrase little children to describe the whole church. If we are in Christ, we have been adopted by the Father. If we are in Christ, we receive the training and discipline of a son. If we are in Christ, we are heirs according to the promise. If we are in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. But little children is also a term used to describe spiritual maturity. And this is uh, another dimension that John is bringing to light. Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to a spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. Now, he didn't actually feed them with milk. right? He fed them the gospel. He fed them the foundations of the faith because that is all they could handle. Those who are spiritually immature are considered children or babes in Christ. And in the context of the separate categories that John uses here, it is safe to say that this is what John has in mind, along with the collective use of the phrase. But it also means physical children. To spiritualize something doesn't mean to take it out of the world, right? There's something about our children. He uses this phrase to describe our physical children as well. That's underlying. There are little children in the kingdom of God. If there weren't, we wouldn't have the instruction to become like them in order to enter it. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. So we have a trifold meaning to the phrase little children in this passage. He writes to physical children to those spiritually immature, and he writes to the collective church. But you may not be able to see in your, in your English translations of the Bible in front of you, in verses 12 and 13, that, that there's a difference between those two words, little children. Not the two words, little and children, but the two uses of that phrase, little children. And this is because our English translations don't capture the, the, what is underlying of those particular words. And I don't like to use Greek words in my sermons. I think it comes off a little pretentious. But I think this is actually helps understand. It, it helps us to understand what the difference is between these two uses. Okay? So in verse 12, the term little children is the word technia. And it's used to describe those who are uh, forgiven for Jesus' namesake. And then he uses the word paideia, little children, to describe those who have known the Father. So technia, as one theologian says, describes the community of nature between the child and its parent. The community of nature between the child and its parent. That is the underlying description with that word. The life of a child with his or her parent and the communal status associated with that life. That's technia. And paideia refers to the subordination of a child to his or her parents in training or in discipline. So we are not only children to the Father in that we have fellowship with Him and are counted as His son or daughter, but we are children under the discipline and instruction of the Father, called to walk in His ways. It's not that He just adopts us and we're counted as His own and we get all the benefits and that's it. No, we have to walk in His ways. We have to do His Word. So if we are in Christ, who is the true Son of God, we are counted children of God and partake of the benefits of that relationship between the Father 
and the Son. John writes to us as little children who have been forgiven, forgiven our sins for His name's sake. Again, this is familial language. The family name that we receive is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ's name that we receive when we are brought into the family of God. Our sins are forgiven for that name's sake. We do not sully the name of Christ with our sins because we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven in the Son who died for our sins. We are given the wisdom and instruction of the Father out of His love for us. We are treated as true sons and daughters because we are united to the true Son. The Word and the Spirit are our tutors now, nurturing us and guiding us in the ways of the Father. And this is important, that we are forgiven for His name's sake, and we receive that name in Christ. Then John says, I write to you, young men, young men. Now again, John is extending the meaning of young men just beyond physically young men. Okay, He's using a broader definition here. There's more to this phrase than meets the eye. The church could be considered as a young man. The church is an army of the Lord that finds its strength in the word which abides in it. We are kings who fight in the light of the victory secured by our great King Jesus. So in this way, the church is described as a young man. Revelation chapter 5 describes the saints, all of the saints, as those who shall reign on the earth. Our inheritance is the whole earth. The church is a young king and kingly people. So young men describe the whole church as kings fighting sin and Satan in light of King Jesus' victory on the cross. But it also describes those who are in the prime of their life. Not just men, but women as well. The physically strong, the courageous, the zealous youth. And it also describes the spiritually young. Those who have zeal for the Word of God. Those who can't stop talking about Jesus. You know these guys. These are young men in the faith. They're excited about the faith. They have the stamina to do the work that the Lord has given them. They're in their spiritual, their spiritual prime. They're fighting sin, reading the scriptures, craving spiritual things. They get to work. So we have a collective view of young men as a whole of the church. We have the physical young men, which is kind of the metaphor being used. And we have spiritual men or spiritual men and women. Young men and women, meaning, meaning those who are spiritually strong. The young men have been trained and nurtured under the Father's care in their, in their childhood. And now they are living out the faith and practice in the world. The word of their childhood abides in them. And this is where they receive their strength to fight and overcome the evil one. By the word of God. And Jesus is our example of this. He is the perfect son who diligently studied the word. He knew the scriptures. He put in the work. He was, he was hashing it out with the, the temple Pharisees and scribes. And he learned from his fathers before him. And he exhibited that knowledge and faith in his fight against the principalities and powers of this world. He showed us how to fight by laying down his life in faith. In faith that he would be raised up from the grave, securing the victory 
over sin, Satan, and death. So the young men here in John's mind are those who carry on that fight. Those who carry on that fight in light of the victory already secured in Christ. They are the strong and the faithful. But John also uses another category to describe the church. He says fathers, that he's writing to the fathers. And in a sense, the whole church is a spiritual father to the world. We're a spiritual father in that we are a prophetic witness to the whole earth. A prophetic witness of Christ. And we have known the Father from the very beginning. The church is old and wise because the church has wisdom in the completed scriptures and in the life of their Lord Jesus. We have seen and and borne witness to wisdom incarnate. But within the church, there are those who are ordained to be spiritual fathers to the children and to the young men. And this kind of language is used all throughout the scriptures, especially in the epistles. But elders in the Old Covenant were fathers literally and spiritually. They were fathers literally and spiritually. In the epistles, Paul tells us, or he tells Timothy and Titus, that they are truly sons to him. Truly sons to him. Paul is a spiritual father to these ministers and to the church at large. So overseers and elders in the church need to be physical fathers for this reason. It's one of of the requirements in the scriptures. Why is that? Because they are spiritual fathers to the church. If they can't manage their own household, how can they manage the household of God? They are spiritual fathers to those in the church. And John writes to these fathers... These fathers in the faith, because they have known Christ who is from the beginning. He is our eldest brother, our eldest father, one could say, in the faith. Our eldest patriarch. And all of our fathers in the church should be images of the wisdom of Christ, who has known the Father from the beginning. And this is what it, this is what it means to be a prophet. This is what it means to be a friend of God, to have known him and walked in his ways for a very long time. So John writes to the fathers in the faith so that they can be witnesses to what he is telling them. And so these fathers can lead and instruct the churches in the word of life. Now this assumes that the, that the children and the youthful will actually listen to the wisdom of the fathers in the faith. That's, that's kind of a requirement as well. So John is writing to pastors and elders to be examples For their people. He's writing to them because they have known him who is from the beginning. They can bear witness to what John is telling them. And they can can pursue their congregations to walk in light of these truths. So in the church we see the forgiveness of sins, the victory of the cross, and the wisdom of God displayed in the lives of one another. And this is because Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. And if we are in him, our lives participate in the life of Christ. The holy family, the the church, lives and moves and has its being in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit only because we have been united to the mature man, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are loved only because he has loved us. We are forgiven only because he has died for us. 
We know the Father only because we know Christ. And we are victorious only because he has won the war. Jesus is the priest, king, and prophet. Now, we were once all outside of this family at one point. Aliens to the fellowship. Aliens to forgiveness. Aliens to wisdom and the victory of Christ. But what does Paul say? He says, but we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have received a new name. The name given to us in our baptisms. The name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And this new name that we have received is more important than any other, any other name under heaven. It's more important than your last name. The family of God is marked by the heavenly waters of baptism. A water thicker than any earthly bloodline. We are marked by the blood of Christ, our Lord. And our Heavenly Father loves us because He loved Jesus. And we love Him because He first loved us. And this love is displayed in the fact that we are counted children of God. Sons and daughters who will inherit His kingdom. And those who are to receive His fatherly instruction and hide it in our hearts. All of the warning scriptures that John mentions up until this point are given to us not because God hates us and wants, us to, wants to condemn us. It is, it is only given to us because He loves us. And He loves us as His own. So this means a couple of things. It means that we must be one as Jesus and the Father are one. This means that we must not look down on those who are of lesser spiritual maturity. The Lord loves them and has forgiven them. He has given them the same name He has given you. He patiently instructs them the same way as He has patiently instructed you. So young men, those in the prime of your life, young men, young women, fathers and mothers, be patient. Be patient with the little ones as the Lord has been patient with you. Wait on your brothers and sisters. Listen to the fathers in the faith. These are the men that God has placed in your life to help guide you to Christ. We are not all wise, but we love you and desire what is best for you. Now this has direct application. This kind of instruction has direct application to your physical families as well. Older brothers and sisters, if you're listening, older brothers and sisters, be patient with your little brothers and sisters. Be patient with them. Also, love the instruction that you receive from your father and mother. Do not despise it. It is good for you. Love it. Learn to love it. And little children, follow your father and mother and do as they do. Learn to love it because they are who God has given you for your benefits, for your good, for your joy. And that means that fathers and mothers, and this includes spiritual fathers and mothers in the room as well, do not exasperate your children and give them more than they can handle. That is part of loving the little children. Right? Love them enough to be patient with them. Do not give them more than they can handle. Each stage of the life of the family of God has a purpose. 
And when we realize this, when we, when we see this and have this in the front of our mind when we are parenting or when we're uh, involved in, in family difficulties or issues, when we have this in the front of our mind, it changes our perspective. That every stage of life has a purpose in the family of God. Children are to begin to know the Heavenly Father who has adopted them. They are to begin to love Him, to begin to obey Him. They are to learn how to walk in His ways, confessing sins and being forgiven. It's priestly work, do's and don'ts, right? Young men and women begin to work out that instruction that they learned as a child and to work it out in the world taking dominion over various parts of the earth that they will one day inherit. And fathers and mothers, they hand down traditions and wisdom to the next generation as they learn, the next generation learns, to walk in the ways of Christ. And all of these stages are vital for the maturity of the whole body. We need one another. We need one another. We need the children to remind the youthful and the fatherly what true faith and forgiveness actually looks like. What wonder and amazement of the grace of God looks like. We need them. We need their joy. We need their happiness. We need their energy. We need the the young men and women to be examples for our children of the strength and faithfulness of Christ. To work hard. To do the work that the fathers and mothers can no longer do. And to do it with joy. We need the fathers to direct the steps of the children and to bridle the blind zeal of the young men. All of these stages of life in Christ exhibit the offices that Jesus fulfills on our behalf. So let us encourage one another in the stage that we are in. Let the word of God abide in you and give, your, and, and give you strength and love and forgive your brothers and sisters as you have been forgiven and loved by Christ. And do all of this with the joy of your salvation. Little children, love one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.